0: Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is John Fortier, who's a resident scholar here at AEI, where he focuses on Congress and elections, election administration, demographics, voting, the U.S. Presidency, and the Electoral College. Before rejoining AEI, who's the Director of Governmental Studies at the Bipartisan Policy Center and the Principal Contributor to the AEI Brookings Election Reform Project. He's also taught at colleges and universities like Kenyon College, the University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. Thank you, Phoebe. Glad to be here.
1: John, we're very happy to have you because, you know, the issue that you focus on or one of the issues you focus on is really a major issue of the day. I mean, it's something where all going to be talking about. There's a new major piece of legislation that just passed the House of Representatives, I believe, called HR1, which covers elections. And and of course, President Trump made quite a fuss about the last presidential election. And of course, people on the left are always talking about the coming back of Jim Crow voting practices. And, and I want to know what's the truth. I want to know what's real and what's not real. And so let me just start out by asking you, do you feel that there is widespread fraud in American elections? So I, I guess I, I wouldn't use the
2: term widespread fraud, but I think there are significant integrity issues, and, and those involve possibilities of fraud, a messy voter registration list, practices which you know aren't always transparent or easily seen what, what the result is. And so I think there are some significant issues. And I do think the left plays those down by saying there's nothing to see there, there's no voter fraud. Do I think there was a conspiracy, millions of votes that the Big elections would change the outcome if we fix things. I don't think we see that sort of problem. I think there are plenty of problems, partly caused by a, a very decentralized system that we have with lots of different practices, hard to follow, and some different ideas between the parties as to you know, what's most important, broadly speaking, sort of access or integrity, but, but even on, on many other smaller issues.
1: So there are some issues in some places that we should be careful about, and I want to get into what those issues are and where they take place. They're not as significant to undermine the overwhelming confidence we should have in our election system by and large, I think you're saying. But then let's turn to the other side. Is there widespread voter suppression that brings back a fair analogy to 1960 Mississippi?
2: Yeah, I, I'm, my answer is, is very similar. and I do think there there are issues, uh, but I don't think there's a, a widespread voter suppression regime out there. And of course, people use that term in different ways. And, and I guess I mean, in a very active way, as we saw through a you know, good part of our history and as voting rights and civil rights laws helped bring down in the, in the 50s and 60s, we don't see that kind of voter suppression. We certainly do see problems with our election system. People might argue that we should have some better access, but better clarity for voters. Maybe we need to tip the scales to Make things somewhat more voter friendly, but I wouldn't characterize most of what goes on as voter suppression and I think you know sometimes as voter fraud is put up there as this word that is used to to think about a big big problems, millions of votes in elections, I don't think on the voter suppression side that's what we see we see really again probably both sides, both parties advocating for you know a cleaner election system, more integrity more on the Republican side, and for you know more access and openness to voting easier voting procedures in some ways on the on the Democratic side, but I don't think we see widespread voter suppression.
1: So you brought up the sort of Democrats arguing for one thing and Republicans voting for the other, but we're doing this interview on the day that the current issue of AI's National Affairs has come out. And the lead article is, is the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensberger's a sort of accounting of his view of challenges to elections. And he makes the I think, relatively unique argument that Donald Trump's complaints about the election in the presidential election echoed and were very similar to the complaints of Stacey Abrams about the Georgia governor's election, and both unfairly maligned the election system in the United States and called into question our confidence in the institution of elections in a way that is damaging. And he had the sentence our elections are both fairer and more secure than they have been at any point in our history. First of all, where are you on this sort of Trump and Abrams are the opposite sides of the same coin, questioning challenging elections without evidence? And where, how would you respond to this assertion that our elections are both fairer and more secure than they have been at any point in our history?
2: Yeah, I really do recommend Brad Raffensperger's article, I think it's well said. And of course, he sitting in Georgia was there at the sort of end of the, the Stacey Abrams Challenge He came into office then. And, and of course, through the through the 2020 election, he's still Secretary of State. I think he's right that there are people in some ways, the Abrams Challenge and the Trump Challenge were, were both really at the legitimacy of the election once we'd gone through all the processes. I think obviously, we could do a lot more work on improving how we recount the votes and Get to a result. But we do have these processes in states. And, you know, in both cases, Trump and Stacey Abrams got to the end and they really weren't willing to say that they'd lost. You know, and it might be they, they think they lost and there were some election problems that contributed to that. We should do better in the future. But, you know, at the end of the day, we, we do come to some closure. And, you know, in our system with 50 states or 50 states in the District of Columbia in a presidential election, We're going to have a variety of different practices out there, and states that maybe one party or the other doesn't really agree with all the all the practices there, and yet you somehow have to work through the process and make your legal challenges. But at the end of the day, come to a point where you can say it isn't all that I wanted it to be, maybe, but I'm going to accept the result. And I, you know, I think that. We did see a similar case in both, both the case of Abrams and Trump in that.
1: Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I what I like about the Brad Raffensperger column or article is that I think there might be some quarters of Trump world where being told you're behaving just like Stacey Abrams <laughs> might <laughs> might make them get a little nervous and upset. But that is exactly what yeah. has happened here. Now I'm going to turn it to to Phoebe for a question because. Not so much a question, but I'm actually going to ask you, Phoebe, a question. Because elections are complicated and they're tricky, and there's lots of issues that go on on them. And you're, I'm going to sort of have you sort of stand in for a representative American. Okay. When you think about elections, what aspect of voting do you worry about as being problematic or potentially a fraud risk? And then we'll ask John whether that's a real serious thing to worry about.
0: I guess you know, differences in states about showing ID when you go to vote.
1: Okay. What's the deal on IDs, John? Are you worried about it because you think that it'll prevent people from voting who should be allowed to vote?
0: Either one. I mean, prevent people from voting or... Yeah.
1: Protect the integrity yeah. of the election? Yeah. Both.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Both ways. So the
1: voter IDs. But wh- yeah. where, what's the story on voter
2: IDs? So look, I, I think some sort of identification, whether it's a photo ID or some other way of identifying yourself is really necessary to the process of of conducting an election. You, you, you want people to come in and be the people that they are and be legitimately there to vote, live in the right place, be of the right age. And so voter ID can have a place. And, and you know, personally, I think it can be done well, and I'm not against it at all. But I guess I wouldn't put my all my eggs in the voter ID basket when I think about integrity of elections, especially you know from the perspective of people who want to improve the integrity of the elections and really want to make things cleaner. It's a perhaps a part of the process. I think where I would really look would be the voter registration system, Mm -hmm. and I think that's true for, actually probably true for for the people who really are promoting access in elections too. I mean that's a that's a system that if we improved in a variety of ways, we probably could have a more transparent, better representative registration list, but also much cleaner and much more you know hooking up with the with the with the people who are really able to vote. And you know the reason I Point to this is we you know we've come a long way. We used to have even before the 2000 election an even more decentralized system of voter registration. Only seven states had a statewide list back then that was on a computer. And you know, one of the acts we passed after 2000, the Help America Vote Act, required states to at least have a statewide computerized registration list. That's come away, but even there, the states don't talk to each other all the time, other than through some more involuntary programs. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be done about the way you register, as well as how we keep the list accurate and clean and take people off the list. And, you know, a voter ID might be a useful tool, but if it doesn't have a good registration system behind it with a good list that connects up to that ID, it's not even that great a, an integrity tool because, again, the, the problem really is the messiness of these lists.
0: Right. One of my questions was, it seems like we kind of get trapped in this this cycle when we talk about reforming elections, where because people, you know, there might be lower faith in the results of the 2020 election for whatever reason, then we have to reform it. But then people are more suspicious of any reforms because they seem politically motivated. So I'm curious, how do you think that we could, in good faith, have something that looks like bipartisan reform to elections?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it is very difficult. And, you know, I'll add one more tidbit to this, that when you ask people if they have confidence in elections, one of the reasons that they don't have confidence is that they were on the losing side. So right. you can easily see that public opinion switch from an election. Republicans won, Democrats won, say, I don't have confidence in the election, more or less because <laughs> the other side was the winner. So that makes it that makes it difficult. You know, we have had some federal bipartisan legislation, very difficult after 2000 a very controversial election. We had the Help America Vote Act. Nobody loved every piece of it, but it was a hashing out of differences and some compromise. But I do think many of the the compromises are more likely to go on at the state level. And, you know, I'll I'll point to one small case, which is in the For the People Act or the HR1, the the Democrats' bill in Congress, but maybe not in the way that I think is as bipartisan as it could be. That's an issue of online voter registration. Many people like to do a lot of things online, and, and states have really moved in that direction. So most states, over 40 now, have some form of a way to register online. But the way that it's been done in the states, slightly differently, has been you're allowed to go online and register if you have already gotten yourself into the DMD system. You're already there because you got your license or, or were there for some other reason, and didn't have. And we had a record for you, and you've shown some sort of documentation, and you've been there in person. And you know, for that reason, Republicans worried about integrity. Thought, well, you know, this sounds like an access issue, which maybe some would worry about. It's just bringing people in and not really checking them out. But because it's already people in the system, it's actually maybe it's a good integrity tool. We can really make sure we have the people that register probably in the, the most secure way, at the DMV, registered in that way. The Democratic bill, the HR1, it really sort of steps back on that and says, hey, online registration without without necessarily those checks. And you know, so I think it's the, it depends on how you frame it. And, and often you have to have a very hard conversation at a state level. But I do think there are some compromises to be made.
1: Well, let's talk about HR1 for a second, because Obviously, the Democrats like it, or they pass it by a party line vote in the House, but it's getting really severely attacked from the right. What are the aspects of that that worry you and are truly a problem, and is there anything in it that you like well I,
2: even before really the substance I mean, the size of the bill is is really striking it's it's each section of the bill could be a very large bill that we'd be debating for years and really thinking about what the proper compromise is so I don't want to say it's a complete wish list of everything you know, the Democratic Party wants from in the, in the area of democracy reform, That it certainly is a very, very broad list. And it's hard to imagine something that broad passing, I think, even thinking about the Democratic side where you have a 50-50 Senate and it's holding together a very narrow coalition. It also, I think, is, is the case that your know, federalism is implicated. And we do do most of our election law and administration at the state and local level of course, there are exceptions, and the Constitution is clear that, that the federal government that Congress by law can override those and, and have a federal standard on certain issues, and we do on voting rights and voter registration and some other areas. But I think you're going to find that even Democrats at the state level, if this were serious, would have some objections to a lot of the provisions and a lot of the, the ways things are implemented. The types of things that probably are getting Republicans most worked up are you know on the on the voting election administration side a lot of move to processes that make voting much easier without really thinking as much about the integrity side and things like making the right to vote without an excuse, by vote by mail without an excuse a a right, having automatic voter registration which you know i think there's some aspects of that that at the state level could be done in a way that would would compromise but i mean i think the worry is the way it's done, that it will be overbroad and put a lot of people on the that, and not think as much about cleaning them up. Certainly there are some of these are in the bill and some of these are referred to in the bill, but changes in, in, in voting rights, changes in redistricting commissions, changes in campaign finance, which, which I think are probably going to get no support on the Republican side. And, and you know, I think some of those, you could have some, some compromises, but I expect that they would be you know, smaller and they would be more at the state level. And you know the size and scope of the bill, given that you have such a, a narrow majority, I think it makes it very unlikely that that this is going to get done
1: so you've mentioned federalism and decentralization a couple times so let's just explore that a little bit elections are I'm sort of curious about whether this is constitutionally required but the practice has been they're run by states and for a long time Republicans were opposed to federal interventions in state practices in elections, I thought, for sort of states' federalism reasons. And then I I had, in the wake of the Trump election, where there was all this upset about the way the states ran the elections, I actually did an interview with two conservative Republican congressmen for AI, and they both were advocating for more prescription of election law by the feds. And now we have a Democratic bill that I guess got has got a lot of federal takeover of election law as well. So where are you on this? Should the principal responsibility for administering elections and defining the rules for elections be at the state level or not?
2: Yes, look, I I believe that there's a it's important that states have a, a very strong role. I'm not against the idea that we might move into some other areas at the federal level. I think that voting is probably one of our most decentralized activities and you know, in some some cases, whether it's a direct federal law or if it's sort of incentivizing the states at the federal level, there might be some some reason to do this. You know, one one area, well, what I don't think is is likely to happen, although constitutionally it is permitted, is that you know, we don't run the elections at the federal level. And so, while we do pass some federal laws, it doesn't mean that we're actually administering them from Washington. And I think that's a strength. That is a strength in part. People worrying about whatever type of security measure intrusion that you're worried about, whether it's foreign influence or or a particular state having some bad practices, the fact that this is cabined off in in various places, hard to get to, and the fact that the the election isn't being run under the current administration, that the, the president of the United States is not somehow in charge of the electoral commission. And I know there are many countries in the world that insulate their commissions from the executive, but But I think there would always be that worry. So I I think there's really something good that we have federalism. But again, it is quite a decentralized system. And I think there might be some ways the federal government could really help the states in improving voter registration. I'm not sure everybody's ready for one list run by the federal government, but certainly the federal government could be very helpful in that. They've been very helpful in in election security from the sense of protecting of voting machines and, and worries about foreign influence, but sort of more direct foreign influence, trying to actually hack into systems and, and, and machines, which which didn't happen. But but still, those sort of things, the federal government's expertise really changed dramatically from the 2016 to 2020 elections. And going back to your question about whether the election was the more, most secure, that can mean a lot of things. But I, But I certainly think we upgraded our tech knowledge and watching and collaboration between state and local officials and federal resources to really make it much more difficult to get to our electoral systems, or even if they're not the direct voting systems, but the sort of subsidiary ones like registration and vote counting.
1: So let's take you through a couple issues concerning voting. And you just give us a kind of quick answer, potential problem, this is how I do it, or this is how the states that run the best elections do it, and it should be acceptable to all parties
2: early voting. So I, I wrote a book with AEI Press back in my first time at AEI, back after the 2004 election, and it was on early and absentee voting. And you know, even at that time, I was not enthusiastic about the move to, to lots of voting by mail, but I, I actually was more enthusiastic and still am today about more early voting in person. Since that book, of course, the, the trends have continued and really gotten to a very high level. And this election we had a dramatic shift where 46 or so percent of the people voted by mail, another 25, six voted early in person, and just a few voted on election day, which is a reversal from from the traditional voting patterns of pre-1970s. But I think it's probably difficult to really want to run an election mostly on election day today. Very few states are doing that. But I also, I have some concerns about vote by mail. Some of them are security concerns. Some of them are issues of resolving the election quickly, that the elections can get very messy if, if you have a lot of ballots that don't come in by election day, and we, we spend a lot of time afterwards counting. I do think, just to be fair to the states that do that, the states like Washington and Oregon and, and Colorado, who, who do all, essentially almost 100% voting by mail, that they try to mitigate some of these problems. Some Some of the problems I think are difficult to fix no matter what, but some of them I think they've done a good job on. I don't think I'm going to persuade the world that we shouldn't expand vote by mail. But I think we're going to see federalism in that realm. And we saw a great difference of opinion about whether to vote by mail or not in in this election. It never really had been the case that voters made much of a distinction, Republican and Democratic voters. They took advantage of whatever process was there in their states. This time, you saw Democrats being very favorable towards it, Republicans being very unfavorable towards it. And so I, I think you're going to see states going in different directions. I do believe that you could have a, a very good system and I guess by my, my choice I, I think having a good robust period of early voting having vote by mail for those who needed it and also having an election day program I, I think that would be a, a good solution extending things out and adding more and more time you know I think some some people think that that would really increase turnout the, the studies really don't show that and so I, I think the benefits of Opening up every avenue aren't so great, but I do think it would be beneficial for states to, to think seriously about running a good in-person voting program. And you know, in the states that are doing much more by mail, there there are things they can do to improve that system as well. Right.
1: So, so a robust period of say thirty days or a couple I, of days. I would be less than that. I mean, I, I you'd be I, less than I, that. So I
2: think. I p- think people focus too much on the number of days. There are some problems with people really voting very early, and well, this election because of all the problems we had, maybe that wasn't such a bad thing, but with COVID, but I do think typically having people vote 30, 40 days before an election, candidates can have things come up or leave. Oh yeah, change or, positions. Uh, I, I
1: uh, So yeah. I wasn't, it wasn't my idea. I just wanted to get where you are too. Yeah. I just want to know a week. Yeah.
2: But but I, but I do think, it, I think also if you do it, you should do it right. I mean, I, sometimes, sometimes states say, you know, say they have early voting in person and yet don't do a lot with it. They don't have much of a, infrastructure for it. They don't have good sites. They don't have long hours. And, you know, having long hours, an intense 10 to 14-day period before the election of, of early voting, I think that's good for voters. One, you know, I believe in the protections of the polling place. That's one of my worries about voting by mail. There, there are some things that are just better at the polling place in terms mm-hmm. of privacy mm-hmm. and security. But also, I, I, I do think that it does take the, the pressure off that one day of election day, and yet you get your, your polling place protections, And so I, I think it's a, a convenience that I don't think the studies show that it increases turnout by itself. Most most practice changes don't. But I do think it's a convenience. And I think it's a modern way of running an election. And I, I think it would be good for, for states to you know, do it well, even if they don't have to do it for a very, very long period of time.
1: And that's great. And, and that is a convenience to voters. And it's the aspect that I like about it is it gets people out of their homes and into a community setting they go up to a place there's a certain formality to the exercise i think that that's sort of sounds communitarian to me so i like that mail in is you kind of you can do it from behind closed doors you don't really see anybody i don't like that but but just tell us what is it about mail in voting that concerns you what what's wrong with mail in voting what makes you you're more nervous about that
2: well look at I- going back to the first point I, I don't think there's widespread fraud in any aspect of the election but I do think there are some issues with mail voting that are you know more open to, to problems than, than other other polling place type voting and you know going back to my book and maybe I'm old-fashioned in a certain way but looked at some of the you know some of our history and we have a, a history especially in the 19th century of you know some very serious voter fraud problems. That, that came, you we know, were actually really around the world, that our ballot wasn't very private. And the, the stereotype, and this was partly true, is the, the city boss would tell you how to vote and they could see how you'd vote because you'd bring in a color-coded ballot and put it in a glass jar or, or some other way, they'd know how you voted and it could be rewarded or not. Now, I don't think we're that type of society nor we're going to have that. But the idea of privacy of the vote, I think, is something that we, we've we forgotten about. and when we started to move to extensive vote by mail yeah, without reasons, without witness yeah. signatures, yeah, all yeah. these things that seemed like hassles to people that, they, that make voting more difficult were actually put in place to recreate the, the protections that we put in. We, we put in what we called the, the Australian ballot, the secret ballot, where our polling places were really reformed state by state at the end of the 19th century. And then when we started to pass these absentee voting laws, we said, well, how can you have privacy at the voting booth? It's in our state constitutions. So we have to have privacy if the ballot is out there outside yeah. the polling place. Yeah. Anybody could watch you. And and again, I don't think that there is some. Now we know why there's
1: the currency with millions of people. Mm-hmm. But like,
2: I love that. I, I
0: think,
1: <laughs> you take your kids in, you tell them to shut it for you. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. But again, if it's a. An employer or a church. Or, well, well, let, or a that's, or so or let's or just. So, are you somebody. are are you against voting harvesting laws that allow organizations to go out and gather ballots, mail in ballots, and bring them in in a bulk to the voting place? Or Is that something that you would hope states would reject? Look, I, I think there
2: there should be and can be reasonable regulation in that area. What I mean by that is, I think the two the two poles of this debate are. Well, we want to make it easy for people and there may be people who have mail ballots who have a hard time getting it back to the polling place and might have trouble mailing it or or getting their ballot back to back in time and maybe someone, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a, a person who works for a cause would help you return that ballot. I don't necessarily oppose a little bit of that, but I do think some regulation where you would keep a large number of ballots being taken in by a particular organization might make some sense. And so there are a variety of state laws on this. Some of them only allow family members, or you know, some of them don't have any real regulations on it. So I, I do think it's, a, it's something to think about. I I think it's important that groups be involved in in the election process and in advocating for their cause and, and getting people to vote. But I am less comfortable with vote you know groups being involved in the voting process. And of course they're involved in the voter registration process too. And I you know I think that's something we have and it's an outlet and we're, we shouldn't change. But I would rather see voter registration go on in a more official setting and I think there probably could be some reg- regulation and there is in many states about how many registrations you can take or that you have to return all the forms as well as in the case of what well, people are calling ballot harvesting what outside groups or parties or other non-related individuals can do to, to help you bring your ballot back a little bit might make sense but but it can be abused and I think we should regulate it
1: what about we've already talked about voter ideas so I don't want to go back to that but what about polling places? This is coming up. I've noticed that Democrats assert that Republican election officials limit the number of polling places, the hours, wait times are long. What's your recommendation there? I think
2: sometimes the talk has to be looked into
1: because in, individual, in
2: almost every place, the local jurisdiction is deciding how many polling places and where they are. They may be doing a bad job of that, and they may be doing a good job of that. But it isn't always, you know, a conspiracy from the top to to close polling places. And, you know, I, I will say sometimes polling places are closing because we're moving to more either mail voting or early voting. And and while it would be great to say we could have just as many election day polling sites as we had before, and we have all these other things, well, of course that that costs money, and and you know, it's a real resource challenge. Remind me, so the, your question well, again? Just I, I just was
1: wondering, do you think that people are I mean, the issue in Georgia, as I understand it, was that the Democrats asserted that Republican election officials limited the number of polling places from a statewide office, the Secretary of State's office. And it turned out, well, actually, they don't have the power to do that. It's done by the counties. And it was just kind of a, asserted as kind of a phony issue. But, but on the other hand, there's a perception. I asked Phoebe what she worried about the most based on her knowledge of the public persona and her own voting practices. And there is a perception, I gather from watching election days, that in high minority areas or big urban areas, wait times are longer. Therefore that's kind of discourages a voter. If you're if you're going down to vote and you're told that you're gonna have to wait for an hour and a half in a long, slow line, you might just well heck with that, I'm not gonna do that. And I just wanna know how much of a problem that is. Is is it a real problem? And do do voting officials have a responsibility to make wait times be within a certain... I mean, when I voted this year, I think I waited about 45 minutes or an hour. It was a long line. It was early in the morning. I came, but I was in a community where a lot of people like to vote early. But is there an issue there? I just, I'm asking you, is there an issue with regard to access for voters denied because the time it takes to vote on election day is just too long? Well, on the first point I, I do think it's right that that local officials really do have the responsibility for, for polling
2: places. That doesn't mean that they couldn't have better resources from the state or possibly from the federal government. But I you know I don't I don't think that there's quite the conspiracy of, of places closing elections, polling places just to give voters a hard time. But I do think there is an issue. It is not a common issue in terms of waiting in line, but the, the tail end of the problem there there have been cases in 2012 was well known for this that there were some significant lines and I was part of the president's commission on election administration at the time the so-called Bauer Ginsburg Commission and you know, they came up with a look at this afterwards so they didn't really feel like anybody should stand in line more than half an hour mm. I think that's a pretty good standard I guess I'm, I'm not they didn't require that to be a legal standard that you could was a goal. It's an aspiration. It's goal, but it was a goal. And, and I think it's a good goal. That And, you know, I do think we tried to get at some of the problems. Because I think the problems in some ways are deep and they're complicated and they're related to resources. And, you know, one dirty secret in the election world is we don't really know how much we spend on election. <laughs> every, <laughs> every place is so different. And the budgets are mixed in different departments and, you know, get the library for free to have the voting site or do you not? And so I think it's very difficult to even figure out which places are under-resourced. But simple things like measuring how long people are waiting in line and trying to use that data to, to figure that out, we, we encourage that. We had hundreds of jurisdictions reporting that sort of thing. I mean, what you do find, it is true that more urban, more African-American, more dense locations have longer wait times. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case, just because you have more people doesn't mean you couldn't have the resources to either process them or to match when they're gonna vote, but we're not always that good about even knowing what the problem is. So I think there are some issues there. And I you know I, I think that by itself, I mean you, you could you could allocate your resources in a number of ways, but but having some forms of I in favor of early voting in person. Okay. Um, um, okay by mail that might take some of the pressure off of that. But I think it's something that that officials should take a serious look at. But I don't think there's an intentional plan to to disenfranchise voters coming from the top. But I do think that there's some issues there.
1: Just two more questions, or maybe three more questions for me. I'm sorry. You know, I used to be in politics, Phoebe. You don't know this. (laughs) I've run a couple elections myself. Mm -hmm. I've both been a campaign manager for congressional campaign, and I ran for state assembly. So I'm into voting. Voting is very cool to me. But there are a lot of details and intricacies to it. So this conversation has reminded me of all of those issues. So I want to ask one quick. In the presidential election this last time there was this silly issue about certain election districts or certain states not permitting the counting of absentee ballots until after the closing of the polls. Where are you on that? I mean, should we, we get the counting started early when the votes are already in? Is there anything wrong with doing that?
2: Broadly I'm in favor of it, but I, I do think you have to realize this is an entire ecosystem and so how all the pieces fit together makes makes a difference. So I think the states could do this well and begin at least a few days early counting ballots as they come in. The difficulties there are just, you know, if if you do have some states that that actually allow a voter to perhaps even come in and reclaim an absentee ballot they've they've sent in if Kennedy dies or something happens. So, So I think there are some smaller difficulties there, but I think you could start a few days early. You also have to be careful if you are going to take an absentee ballot and Certainly, I think you can check it out, check out all the information out on the back. But if you open it up, that envelope, you're going to have to be sure that you are immediately checking off that voter as having voted yeah, uh, yeah, because yeah. once you throw the battle in the pile. yeah. So not all states are doing this well. It's going to Colorado, very progressive state does this extremely well. They, they open it the out early, but they have this very, very sophisticated system so that no one could show up at a polling place the same day and cast another ballot. So but there's some little issues with that. I would add to that, though. So I think, yes, it should do this. I don't think it necessarily has to be very early. The actual physical counting of the votes once they're checked out can happen relatively quickly. But I think there are a number of questions on the other end. Personally, I favor ballots being in by election day in hand. You could have certainly some states say with a postmark and up to 10 X number of days after the election, they come in. But you also do have, and I think some of these are good things in a way. In the name of voter protections, the ability of election officials to contact you if there's a problem with your absentee ballot, and you have a certain number of days to come back afterwards. I guess I would like to see those things wrapped up more, more quickly, and that we are seeing many, many more ballots not counted on election night than we used to see. And I think that leads to problems. It doesn't cause all the distrust in elections, but I think it fuels it a bit, and when you have potential lawsuits for every absentee ballot that's unopened sitting around after Election Day for each one. Somebody could say, stop that. Let's, yeah, let's, yeah. But let's that's counting it. after Election Day. That, that's right, what right. So
1: that did throw people together. Off. I think
2: counting both before and also and also trying to close up the time where they come in afterwards. Maybe they have them come early. I think would be a good thing. I'd like to resolve our elections more quickly and, and hope that more ballots could be in and resolved by election day, as many as possible, so that the the universe of ballots out there that we're arguing about or that people might be spewing conspiracies about is smaller. So so yes, I'm for counting those ballots earlier, but I'm also for having states get the ballots in and counted as quickly as possible.
1: Okay, this turns a little bit from procedures, which are so important in this thing, to outcomes or results. And I'm just, what is, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but, but of course, the thing in all these election discussions is, is, that's underlying the people that are actually in the business is, I want my people to vote for me and I won't. I don't want your people to vote for you because, you know, that's what, just assuming that that's in their mind, I, I assure you it is. When it comes to turnout, is there a particular group in America, either defined by race or ethnicity or region or politics that is not voting or is voting in really high numbers that we maybe don't know about in terms of their participation rate? What, what's the status of participation rates by different groups in America?
2: Well, first of all, I mean, I think everybody knows that we had record turnout in this last election. And, and, and actually, our last four elections before then have been our highest turnout election since we, we moved the voting age to, to 18 from 21. So we could arguably do more, and other countries may have us beat in some ways. But for us, we've been doing quite well, and so we're, we're doing better. Certainly young people still are the low voting groups that comes from perhaps there's some civic reasons, but there are also reasons of mobility and not settling in and not necessarily knowing the politics of the place that they live and not getting registered. And so there are all sorts of things that young people, reasons young people have always been and certainly more and more in recent years have been the lowest voting cohort. Newer immigrant groups, both Hispanics and Asians, tend to vote at lower rates. African Americans yes they still vote at slightly lower rates than than whites overall but their voting participation has been very strong and obviously has improved dramatically from the, the years of you know, overt discrimination legal discrimination as well so pretty high I guess the highest on the scale I think would be college-educated white voters you know one interesting point for the Republican party to think about is that if their coalition was composed more of those types of voters and so they tended to have some, some higher turnout voters as, as that shifted a bit. And I won't say this is the only reason for perhaps the loss in the, the Georgia runoffs, but sometimes the votes in less than presidential elections, like that runoff, the more most regular voters are, are the white college-educated voters, white working-class voters voted at a lower rate. And so you know, I think that that has been relatively consistent
1: over the years, although you know, who, which party benefits from that has changed a bit. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So, so if you're thinking in partisan ways, I know I'm not supposed to think about it. and You're not supposed <laughs> to think about it. None of us are supposed to think about it. So, and you're worried that young people like you, Phoebe, are more likely to be Democrats. <laughs> then you want to expand ways to get them to vote more and make it easier for them to vote, even yeah. if they've just moved to Brooklyn last week or moved to wherever your young people are moving to. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you're a Republican and you find that you're losing with white college-educated voters, which you are right now as the Democratic Party shifts to be more like that, and you want to maximize your vote among white non-college-educated voters, and you may want to increase access for them. Maybe maybe they'd like more early voting and more absentee ballot. It's a tricky call. Which one of these procedural changes benefits which party? Right, John? I mean, am I right about that? That, that it's not yeah, so no, easy that's, to that's know.
2: That is right. And the shift, the shift of the coalitions probably put that a little bit more in, in, in focus, because again, I think we used to think more about the white vote monolithically. But, you know, there's, there's a pretty good difference between the white non-college and the white college vote in a variety of ways, but certainly in voter participation.
1: Okay. Last question for me is, we've talked about the procedure of voting, given the current existing way in which we vote. But you've all event pointed out the other day in a column that, that there's another area of election reform that's unrelated to the Procedure of voting—it's about the way we structure elections. And I wanted to—if you could just give us a, an answer on ranked choice voting, merged primaries, no no state part, no party primaries. Where are you on that stuff? Do you think there are—is there opportunity for reform there that could be good? Is it growing? What's your what's your view of that sort of thing?
2: Well, I, I guess I'm a little more cautious about those sort of reforms. I think one concern people have is about the polarization of our electorate, so that more conservative people are in one party, more liberal people in the other party, and there's, there's less of a middle and that, that our candidates we're electing are, are you know, less able to compromise in Washington. Davis. Yeah, I, I think that's an issue. But I worry about reforms that sort of downplay the parties in this. I, I think, I guess I would look more at reforms that think about ways in which parties might. Improve their primaries to to get a wider swath of people looking at their candidates. Maybe make more competitive candidates. But I guess some of these reforms I I think are perhaps going to end up with multiple political parties. Which of course there are other countries in the world that do that. But I, you know, I think there's there's some value in two party system where you have a real choice, where you where you know what you don't want, but maybe more than you than what you do want that you that you have clear alternatives. And so I I think that we should be careful in thinking of what some of these reforms will do to the party system. They, they sometimes seem like they'll be the best of all worlds. But I, I do worry that, that perhaps they will increase the number of parties we have, which, you know, I think would, would actually make things like having a real opposition harder. If you have a party in power with a bunch of fragmented other parties on the other side, you know, I think you want people to have their voice to to have an alternative. And so I guess I'm a, I'm a two-party system person, Primarily, although I think there some things we could we could do to reform that, and I just am cautious about some of these reforms moving in that direction. Well, that's a very that's mm-hmm. a very good point.
0: One last question for me. I think we've been very even handed here, but to pick on Republicans for for just a minute. I mean, what upsets me the most about everything in the aftermath of the twenty twenty election was this completely unprecedented kind of circus where we had the sitting president, you know, saying that the election was fraudulent, and then a not insignificant number of people in his party in, in Congress who didn't challenge that or seem to think that themselves. So what I would be most worried about is that now we have this, do we have we set up this precedent where, you know, you can kind of pick and choose what you think went wrong about a certain election. And then every four years, we have this spectacle of, you know, people disputing the election results. Do you think that that will kind of continue to happen? Or was this a one off?
2: Well, I hope it doesn't happen. I mean, I do have some concerns that you know, we do have some very different views of the parties, on not only on policy, but on, on how we run elections. And so I think those are fairly deeply held. I don't think this is the only solution, but I, I do think that any sort of messiness that you leave after the election fuels that sort of thing. In a very, very close election, it's going to be controversial, and there's going to be hurt feelings on one side or the other. In 2000 election, I would point to, George W. Bush won that election, but it was extremely close. And you could make some arguments as to, well, if this little thing had gone differently or been done, then it would have gone the other way. That's hard, but I think we could be clearer and resolve our elections more quickly. And again, we had COVID and we had some other challenges We made lots of changes in this election that contributed to it. But I think we could do a lot more things that would that would get us closer to a results, closer after the election and and limit at least the scope of these things. And so it's not a perfect solution to this problem because I think the very close elections are still going to be controversial, but I would hope that we could you know, think about the post-election process a little better, resolving recounts, resolving things before the electoral college meets, and hopefully the actors will take it more seriously and more quickly if we do that.
1: Well, that was a good discussion, and that was a great final question, and I'm not going to add anything to it. I have my own views, but the banter is for you, John, and for me. So. Thanks a lot. Really enjoyed this.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.